Hi, I'm Nitsan. Hi, and I'm Adam. And you're listening to Stories from the Eastern West, a show of little-known tales from Central and Eastern Europe. For today's episode, we have a story that might sound a little like the plot of a B-movie, like an action film where Soviet spies and Chinese martial arts mix together against a post-apocalyptic background. It's about a young man from the Vietnamese countryside who accidentally messes with the wrong people and is then forced to embark on a long journey to find a safe place in this world. He calls himself Nam, but that's not his original name. Coming up on Stories from the East and West. Zlín, Praha, Varsava, Madrid, London, Paris, New York, Casablanca. Where you see a kind of totality of the human presence. Absolutely, absolutely, that is exactly Stories from the Eastern West. Polacy nie umieli wymawiać mój imię, zamiast hi, to wymawiali hi. Polish people just didn't know how to pronounce my name. Instead of saying hi, they kept saying hi, which means stinking urine. That really bothered me. I often heard Paul sing that birthday song which goes Stolat, Stolat, This tune is the Polish equivalent of Happy Birthday. The phrase niech żyje nam roughly means long live the birthday person. And I'd wonder who they were singing about since Nam is a popular name in Vietnam. So I started to introduce myself as Nam, and I still do today. I was born at the end of the world, 120 kilometers from Hanoi, in a primitive village called Swan Cho. My mum told me she thought I'd been born dead. They put me in a coffin, but eventually heard a sound coming from inside. They opened it and discovered I had survived. That was in 1957. France's colonization of the region came to an end in 1954 with the First Indochina War, after which Vietnam was reinstated, but then split into two. The Socialist North was backed by the USSR and China, while Southern Vietnam was supported by the United States. This quickly led to the Second Indochina War, more commonly known as the Vietnam War. It lasted almost 20 years. That's when I was born. Straight into war, the war between Americans and Northern Vietnam. My entire childhood took place in the middle of bombings. The shrapnel left behind after a bomb was a precious item. It symbolized a faraway, better world. To us children, those bomb pieces were worth what diamonds and gold are worth to people today. Wanting to collect as much shrapnel as possible, Nam and his friends knew that anything shiny that caught the eye of the pilots above would become a target. To take advantage of this, they'd take mirrors out into the fields and turn them towards the sky before taking cover. As soon as the bombs stopped falling, Nam and his friends would run out to retrieve steaming hot pieces of exploded metal 
and later sell them to grown-ups. The war wasn't a nightmare for us. It was a game. When we were at school, we loved it when the bomb siren started. There was only one bunker where both boys and girls would mix. We sat tightly next to each other. It was a very sensual experience, one that I can't forget. I was a rather difficult child, an ADHD type. I remember when I was exactly eight and a half, I cried for the first time. I didn't understand why, but my parents were sending me away. I was sent to a village close to the border. It was called Nam Nim. It was a boarding summer school for difficult children where they taught Wu Su. The words Wu Su mean martial art. It was created in the era of Mao Che Tung. These boarding schools were supposed to prepare children so they could compete in the Olympic Games. I was a part of this program. Oh my God. What did we do there? What was the schedule? We woke up at 5.30 and went running. While we ran, we counted Now I understand why. It prevented us from fainting. I wasn't even nine years old. I was nobody. If I didn't obey, they could have killed me. My life was in the coach's hands. We felt very vulnerable. At 6.45, we started the stretching session. It was more like a torture session. The older boys tortured the younger ones, and I was the youngest. They stretched me so bad that they broke my bones. That lasted until 7.30 or 8. And after that, there was a series of exercises that I couldn't understand. I kept asking myself, what is this? Why am I here? What am I doing here? What am I supposed to do with this later? I just wanted it to end. We weren't taught with words, but with sticks. It all went far beyond our limits. It lasted an eternity to me, almost 10 years. Every year, right after the normal school year finished, I was sent there for four months and trained for six to eight hours a day. Back then, Vietnam was constantly being bombed, but despite that, I felt comfortable there. I lived a full life. But whenever I went to that boarding school, it felt like I was arriving in hell. For 80 years, Vietnam was a French colony, and then there was the American War for 20 years. The education system just wasn't functioning very well. The Vietnamese needed engineers to rebuild their destroyed country, so students were sent to study in other socialist countries. The war finished in 1975, but I left before that, at the end of 1974. I was sent to Poland because there were good departments there that taught shipbuilding. Over a dozen of us were sent abroad that year. 
four of us to Poland. We came by train. We traveled for two weeks through China, Mongolia, Russia, the USSR, and finally Poland. I knew nothing about Poland. It was winter time. I think it was November or the beginning of December. The first question that came to my mind in Europe was, where is everybody? I couldn't understand why there were hardly any people on the streets, in the fields or anywhere. It looked deserted and sad like after a nuclear war. Saying this was a different world would be an understatement. I felt like I had arrived from the Stone Age to the post-nuclear apocalypse age. It was like I'd landed on the moon. The four of us had so-called guardian angels. One man, the age of our parents, for every two students. His job was to watch us what we said, where we went, and what we did. If we did anything wrong, we knew we'd immediately get sent back to Vietnam. We had to obey very strict rules. It made having relationships with other people impossible. We could only keep in touch with other Vietnamese students, but there were only a few of them. That's why we were very lonely. At the end of each week, they measured our hair with a ruler. It wasn't allowed to get any longer than 1.5 centimeters. We had to wear the clothes we'd brought from Vietnam. If we wore anything else, we'd immediately get into trouble. We also had to write a self-assessment diary every week. At the end of every month, it was all sent to the embassy. Imagine a person sitting on a boat in the middle of the sea. They're thirsty and there's plenty of water around, but they can't drink it because it's salty. That was us. Around that time, I started thinking about Wu Su as being something primitive. How could I run around with spears and sticks in such a civilized country? Europe was in a whole different era. How could I be seen with spears and sabers in a country where there were cars and radios and video recorders? But at the same time, my body still needed it. I became depressed. I felt imprisoned like a tiger in a cage. So I started my training again. I did it in hiding so that no civilized person would see some primitive man running around with a spear and a sword. After a few weeks, I felt great again. Every night, Nam would slide down the drain pipe outside the window of his dormitory. He escaped the eyes of his guardian angel and would go practice in an abandoned resort he found by the seaside. Eventually, someone discovered his hideout. On his way home one day, a group of young men surrounded him. Oh, hell, I thought they want to fight me. I'll never manage. 
I just heard them repeat this one word. Pocas, pocas, pocas. I didn't know what it meant. They wrote it on a piece of paper. I looked it up in the dictionary when I got home. It meant show or demonstration. Then I understood that they wanted me to perform for them. And that's where my never-ending journey started. I was getting paid for every performance. For a Vietnamese student, it was a lot of money. I was so naive. I kept a TV in my room, a video recorder, a stereophonic radio. I paid off my guardian angel so that he wouldn't report on me. But what I did was still suspicious, and I was getting myself into more and more trouble. During this period, the Vietnamese embassy in Warsaw had a jail in the basement for unruly Vietnamese students. They were usually kidnapped by a group of commandos that came for them in a Volga car. They would lock the students up for a few days until they could put them on a train back to Vietnam. My flatmate, my best friend, gave me up. But if he hadn't, he would have been the one in trouble. One day he disappeared. I was afraid someone had kidnapped him. Eventually, someone knocked on the door and I saw two Vietnamese men. I quickly understood that they had come for me. What chance did I have against commandos who had already killed a couple hundred Americans? It was a question of life and death. They pushed me to my limits. I fought them with anything I could get my hands on. A lamp, a chair, a bed, sheets, anything. Their job was to take me back to the embassy alive, but I was prepared to kill to escape. That was my strength. And I left them behind in that room. That's all I can say. That was the beginning of my defection. I disappeared without a trace and fled to Warsaw. I always started from scratch, but in Warsaw, I literally started with empty hands. I stayed with Aldona Klimchak. She was part of the Warsaw intelligentsia and they were all interested in so-called Asian wisdom. They dreamt of meeting an Asian who could teach them things. They were looking for a guru, and I was completely broke. So I established a group. I taught these intellectuals and made a living off of it. Their idea of an Asian master was a man with a long white moustache, sitting serenely in the lotus position. A wise man who knows the cosmos like his own pocket, whose every word they would treat like a prophecy. And I was just a kid, but they wanted me to be that master. During classes, instead of training Wusu with me, they'd ask me philosophical questions. Sometimes I'd understand only a single word from their long questions. What was I supposed to answer? I would just say a few words that made no sense and they would treat it like the words of a guru. That's how I played the role of the great guru with his white moustache. One of my students was a young girl. Her name was Anya. She was very slim and came from a good family. I had never been with a woman. I'd never had a girlfriend. I didn't understand anything about that. 
But there was this big emotion between us. After a while, she flirted with me and invited me home. And that's how it started. True romance. True love. When she was 18, she had her first child with me. By the time she was 22, we'd had three. But when we first became a couple, Anya's parents, who were members of the Workers' Defence Committee, started being blackmailed. The Workers' Defence Committee was a social organisation that helped political prisoners and their families. One day, Nam's future mother-in-law, Kristina Starczewska, was arrested in the street and pressured into collaborating with the secret police. If she didn't agree, they said Nam would be sent back to Vietnam, where he would be sentenced to death for betraying his country. She refused to sign the papers. When she came home, she started organising my escape. We lived in Otrebusi at the time. Our house was soon surrounded by secret security services. I escaped dressed as a woman through the basement into the forest, then to a car. Six or seven cars were involved as decoys. I was taken to a camper van in the Missouri Lakes. I wasn't prepared. I didn't even have a coat. I'd left dressed like I am sitting here today. That's how I looked getting out of the car there. It was the coldest winter of the century, with temperatures down to minus 35. The temperature in the camper van was the same as outside. If I hadn't been determined to hold on to life, I would have died there. I covered the van with snow and insulated it a little. I found a piece of metal and made knives out of it. I managed to make a fire, although I didn't have any matches. I ate earthworms, whatever bugs and larvae I could find under the dead leaves. I was very careful not to fall asleep. I knew that if I fell asleep, I would never wake up. I survived that winter. My friends said they came to get me two weeks later, but I didn't believe them. It must have been at least three weeks. They took me to a monastery for Kamaldali's monks. The rules there were very strict. We slept on wooden boards. We wore hoods that covered our heads in a way that meant you could only see part of the floor. You weren't supposed to look up or see anyone's face. We only left our rooms to take some bread and butter from the cafeteria and go back. In other words, it was like being buried alive. That's how I felt. During that first week, I was trying to analyse everything that had happened to me since I was born. Every little detail until there was nothing left to analyse. Then I, I started to touch myself to check I was still there because it was so dark all the time. I would pinch myself to feel some emotion. I felt like if I'd seen a rat, I would have kissed it. I would have begged it to lay next to me on the bed. But there weren't even any rats there. I can't even remember how long I was kept there. From there, I was taken to a place that was worse than anything I had ever seen. 
It was a convent for nuns close to the city of Częstochowa. They hid me in a hermit cell. You could only open the door from the outside. Once you were locked inside, you couldn't leave. There was one small opening in the ceiling, the only way you could see if it was day or night. There. That was the second time I thought I might not make it. After a while, I started having hallucinations. I lost all my vital forces. I couldn't even move my hand. Food was given to me through a hole in the wall, like the hole I recently made for my cat so that he can go in and out whenever he wants. It was like prison. The lid opened, someone pushed in a bowl, and then they closed the lid. That had happened a few times a day. I felt dead, but I guess I still must have had some hope in me. What saved me was a hand. I was longing for human touch so badly I started wishing that the hand that put food in my room would touch me. One day, when I saw her, I quickly grabbed the hand and pulled it towards me. I heard the person on the other side scream in panic. I was too exhausted to talk and didn't even know the words to say, calm down, I only want to be touched. I grabbed the hand firmly and put my face into it so she could touch my cheeks. She became silent on the other side. Maybe she cried. I let the hand go and she started caressing my hair and my face. I fell asleep. When I woke up, the hand was gone. After that, every day during meal times, I would approach the opening to be caressed by the hand. That hand saved my life. At some point, I was picked up by Anya and her father and taken to Warsaw, where I continued to hide. We hid together. When martial law started in 1981, we applied for asylum. We tried every country, but only France said they would accept us. It was around then when I met Ho Chi Kubiak. It's a very funny story. His father was a Pole who fought in the First Indochina War. He was very courageous and in return, the Vietnamese president, Ho Chi Minh himself, adopted him. He met a Vietnamese girl and they had a son together, and the three of them moved to Poland. That's how I met the son. His widowed mother was probably the Vietnamese ambassador's lover. She visited him at the embassy every day. She found my passport that was kept there and gave it to me. With that passport, the French embassy could give me the visa needed for asylum seekers. Since my wife, Anya, was the daughter of Stefan and Christina Starczewski, Workers' Defence Committee members, getting us out of the country, whatever way it was, was tempting for the authorities. Giving one-way tickets to the people they didn't like was a popular move among the regimes of the Eastern Bloc. They often presented captured dissidents with a choice, go to jail or leave the country and never come back. In 1982, we went to France. We spent the next 17 years there. 
We moved to Nice in the south of the country. France felt like heaven to us. Social assistance is very good there. I had a lot of time to take care of myself. I studied a lot. I had time to train again. Thanks to that period, I now have a lot of skills. I used to train in an open space in the mountains near where I lived. A man called Sokolovich saw me there. He was fascinated by Chinese martial arts. We opened a wusu school together and we had a lot of success. I introduced wusu to France. We were in heaven and my mantra was, we shall never go back to the past, back to Poland. But my wife, Anya, didn't feel that way. She was divided on whether she wanted to stay or go back to Poland. But I kept telling her, I'm never going back. On top of that, we were having marital problems. I cheated on her with her friend and she fell in love with a French man. All in all, the situation was very bad between us and she decided to return to Poland with our kids. I sold our apartment and paid our debts. Wanting to leave the sorrow behind, I started traveling the world. I wouldn't have survived in France without my family and I didn't want to go back to Poland either. I felt I had to travel to forget it all. But I wasn't able to go to Poland. I was running away, looking for something to soothe my pain with. I was very lonely. I kept going back to France and then traveling again. I lost any reference point. I kept asking myself where my home is. My kids were missing me, I was missing them, and I still wasn't going back. But in the end, I finally gave up and came back to Poland. And here I am. What do I do now? Mainly nothing. I eat breakfast, then lunch, then I go to classes in the evening. Sometimes I give private classes in the morning. But I wouldn't call it a teacher-student relationship. I simply spend time with them. I teach them what they ask me to. They pay me for that and that's how I make a living. I don't teach, I only pass on what they would like to know. I don't play the role of the master or guru anymore. At this point, it doesn't make any difference to me if I'm in Poland or France or Vietnam. My home is where I am. It happens to be Poland right now and I'm enjoying being here. And this is where the story ends. This episode of Stories from the East and West was produced by Move Me Media for Culture PL and hosted by Adam Jawawski and me, Nitzan Reisner. It was reported and written by Monika Proba and edited by Wojciech Alekszak and me, Adam Jawawski. Wojciech also did all the music and sound design too. If you want to learn anything else about the story you just heard, 
The show notes can be found in your podcast app or on the Stories from the Eastern West website at sftew.com. Make sure to subscribe or check our feed next month. On November 1st, we'll be releasing a story about the 700 Polish children who made an unlikely journey from the depths of Siberia to the New Zealand countryside. Our producer on that story, Piotr, was born in Poland, but actually raised in Auckland. To make the story, he went back to New Zealand and spoke with some of the last people to remember this incredible journey firsthand. Make sure you don't miss it. Hear you next week. <laughs>